Welcome to the inaugural uh, Brand and Associates podcast, where we can have some intellectually stimulating conversations regarding uh, hot topics in the insurance industry to get a perspective you're not really going to see anywhere else. Today, joining us, we have uh, Chris Burand and Mark Fidel. Chris, obviously, is the uh, president of Buran and Associates, a insurance consulting firm where he helps agents maximize the value of their business in both day, daily operations and in perpetuation uh, events. And Mark is the co-founder of RiskSense. They are a, uh, a risk-based vulnerability risk management consulting firm where they do proactive consulting with folks so that they don't have to worry about terrible cleanup on the back end. Uh, my name is Paul Borup. I'm going to be the host of, of the podcast today. And with that, we will uh, jump into our, fir- our, our topic, which is uh, cyber, cyber insurance. It's, it's been an uh, emerging risk for a long time. I think it's there, and we want to talk about some, some areas that we don't normally see. We have three questions for you. Hopefully, we'll spend about five minutes on each question and give you some really actionable stuff you can walk away with. The first question is, what are the material cyber-related expenses that aren't being discussed. There's the traditional ones, but there's some significant expenses out there that really are being missed. Um, Chris, what do you what do you think about that uh, question? And what are the top or the the expenses that you see that most agencies miss? Ransomware is obvious, but there's all of the related um, expenses, the little things that get to you, and they're not so little, but You've got to deal with hardware. You've got to deal with software replacement. You've got to deal with attorneys. And the attorneys, the legacy of, and, and litany, I should say, of, of attorneys that you may find yourself dealing with is, is pretty significant. Because when you have a, when you have a fire, your, your building burns down. If it doesn't catch anybody else on fire, cause smoke damage, that's it. When you have a cyber claim, you affect all kinds of other people. And every one of those people have a right to find their own attorney. So the number of attorneys you may find yourself dealing with is literally infinite. Um, There's some interesting things about your cybersecurity firm. You may decide that you wanna fire your cybersecurity firm because they failed to protect you. It's not cheap to go find another firm transfer the knowledge, the data, um, reset all of your security protocols, do the new training. Um, You do have to do training as one of the expenses. Um, All of your your notifications that I find some people say those notification requirements don't apply to us, so it doesn't really count. I haven't found that exception in any of the laws, by the way. Um, They kind of seem universal. So those are some of the expenses that we see. Um, It's almost infinite, Paul. Um, The kinds of expenses that you can incur from a cyber claim. Is that fair, Mark? That is, Chris. Thank you. And and, uh, good to be with you and Paul on this podcast. One of the other things that's interesting is let's say the the attack is a uh, a ransomware attack where uh, an entity systems are taken offline or, or they're down but they still have to conduct business. Then that business may shift to 
Um, if they can't afford it, they might shift to the employee's personal devices. And so suddenly you're conducting business because of the ransomware attack that's being dealt with on uh, machines where the data might be stored um, in a, on a device that the company doesn't own, that the entity doesn't own. And that could cause problems later on um, because let's say there might be a lawsuit in relation to the ransomware attack. And for discovery purposes now, suddenly you might have all of your employees' personal devices involved in discovery. And that could be no fun for a lot of people. Um, we've, I, I've, I've spent a, too many Saturdays at somebody's house, a defendant's house in a lawsuit, getting images of personal devices uh, for forensic purposes so that uh, one side or the other has the information for a lawsuit. And so those you don't think of it at the front end, and, and, but in order to keep the business going, assuming it hasn't been crippled, um, you have to still be able to have the information flowing. And uh, we've seen this happen uh, before uh, as a stopgap measure. So those are, but the ones you listed are certainly applicable. I saw another one specific to the insurance industry last week where an insurance entity's entire customer list was made public. And that customer list was in the hundreds of thousands of clients. Not so now you have privacy violations, right? You have confidentiality violations. Yeah. Right. And then what are you going to do to recover the value of your client's data, your client's list, and the fact that all of your competitors now have access to everything. And just imagine if they had the standard of, of encrypting the data in transit as well as at rest. Mm -hmm. So if you encrypt something and then you layer on another level of encryption, that's great, that's fine. The underlying data is still encrypted, even if you lose control over it. But if it hasn't been encrypted in the first place, and only the bad guys have the password and you didn't pay for it, and now they have your data, if they've uh, exfiltrated your data, then you have a problem. Um, and uh, and, and you, to your example, um, I'd be fascinated to be on the plaintiff side of those lawsuits. <laughs> <laughs> this one's flying under the radar. It's not been made public. So yeah, understood. All right. <laughs> until now. Right, right. <laughs> And then all of these expenses, right, that we've been talking about, aren't just for the traditional laptops and desktops and things like that. It's, it's the machinery. It's that Internet of Things. When you talk about impact in business, it could be some of that, that equipment that goes on offline because of an attack. And you can't then pivot to um, the employee's devices which actually is probably a good thing, right? Because then you don't increase the, the exposures you already have. Absolutely. Um, the, the, let me use a, a, a short example of a small uh, incident where the incident was a laptop. So an outside auditor was doing an audit for a state agency. And this is all public record, but I'll, I'll still not use names. And uh, the, so the data for the audit was transferred to the auditor's uh, employee's laptop via thumb drive. Thumb drive was given back to the agency. 
the uh, employee left, went to another job site at another uh, community, and uh, the employee had two laptop bags and two laptops in the vehicle. Vehicle got broken into, you know, 450 miles away from where the original client was. Uh, two, what, two laptop bags and one laptop was recovered. The other laptop containing the 30 some odd plus thousand records from the state agency was not recovered. Uh, so as soon as it's out of care, custody and control, you have to assume it's in the wild. The data is in the wild. That was never proven, but that small laptop, laptop theft cost $865,000. Um, and guess who paid? The auditor's E&O coverage paid because the employee did not have the laptop encrypted and that was proven. And uh, it wasn't password protected either. And, and so there was notification that had to happen to 30,000 clients. Uh, my firm helped write the letter uh, to uh, explaining what happened because this agency had constituents in all 50 states. So we had, they had to comply with the notification laws in other states. So we went with what's the strictest notification laws and write, to the, write the letter to that standard. Uh, small agency, they, couldn't, uh, they didn't have the personnel to staff an 800 number for the inquiries. So had to hire uh, a unit of, uh, of uh, I think it was uh, one of the three data reporting agencies. Uh, uh, it wasn't Equifax, but it was uh, one of the other ones. There's a business set up to do this type of reporting for breaches, breach notification. So they set up an 800 number, et cetera. And the E&O covered, now, now the firm said um, uh, that they, uh, they, they complied immediately as soon as they realized they had a problem. But their e and their E&O carrier complied as well. Um, and uh, I think they, they did well by saving, they saved their reputation. They let go of that employee because he wasn't following their own policies. But this ripple effect, right? The end, end bill was $865,000 that was covered entirely by an E&O policy. So, and, and it wasn't, a, wasn't an attack, it was a theft, right? But still data was lost. So, yeah. Uh, Pretty, pretty minor event that was very expensive. Again, yeah. Two other examples on, on that, um, on the expenses. Don't forget regulatory compliance. Yep. And some of the regulatory compliance involves audits and training. And by law, these audits and training are, they're mandatory. So that's something that I see go under the wire a lot of times people don't think about or don't know, even know about. Um, and then another one is the ripple effect. So uh, I saw a claim where there was like a, a CNC Haas machine and the CNC Haas machine got attacked. A very, very sophisticated machine took six months to replace the manufacturer couldn't manufacture meet their contractual requirements for six months. So all of their clients had a right under their contracts to sue for damages. And so that's kind of a, you know, a type of cyber set of damages that we don't always, we don't always think about. Like we think about the theft of the laptop, but we don't think about someone um, taking over uh, a CNC Haas machine. Um, there's been incidents where now you can, the, um, 
heavy equipment is for all practical purposes a robot. And those robots within the heavy equipment can be taken over by a cyber thief and run. And these huge machines can be run through buildings. They can be run, um, they can be used to operate, um, to crush a building. Saw one of those once. So the cyber has just unreal legs in places that we would never ever think of it anymore. And a lot of expenses. If any of the folks listening to this podcast have clients in the healthcare industry, and uh, let's say it's a clinic or a hospital uh, setting, there's equipment in there that is uh, regulated by uh, the FDA. And a fair amount of this equipment uses operating systems that are embedded versions of likely Windows, sometimes Linux, all right? The point being, though, is that if these are taken out in a ransomware attack, it, it, take a regular laptop you could, or a desktop, either way, you can wipe the image and restore it. You can't do that with an FDA-regulated device. You have to actually replace it unless the manufacturer has permission from the FDA to apply the patches to the software that's the operating system. So now you have this added expense and potential downtime for surgeries, for patient care, et cetera, if your physical infrastructure is affected by a cyber attack. So that's always fun for insurance carriers and agents who uh, deal with healthcare facilities to understand those implications. Oh yeah, and with all that, I mean, it's, it's the good news is, is this is getting more attention. It's being assigned, especially at the board level, uh, more focus, talk about regulatory action things. Boards are really looking at um, cyber and how to address it. But what are they, what are they missing? I mean, the, the pickup of cyber insurance is still low, even though boards are talking about it. Why do you think that is? I think that, uh, Paul, I think that part of the problem is uh, transparency, quite honestly. The boards of an organization, for-profit or non-profit, doesn't really matter to me, but they have a fiduciary duty. They have to have an understanding of what's going on financially and things that affect the entity financially, right? These are uh, cyber issues are often considered operational and tactical versus strategic, but <laughs> I've seen a number of tactical situations that have um, that have then caused an entity to have strategic uh, to, to experience strategic impacts to their business, right? So very much so, we have clients in in my business who are using the data that we are able to provide that they're reporting on a monthly, it used to be quarterly, now monthly basis to their boards their posture, their cybersecurity posture, based on the information that, that uh, we're able to help them provide. Uh, and it, it is critical. You don't have to have a, a, a board comprised of CFOs, nor do you have to have a board comprised of uh, computer science engineers, right? But you have to have an informed board because if they're taking their fiduciary responsibilities seriously, they have to have access to the information necessary to make those decisions relevant and meaningful. Thanks, Mark. Chris, are you seeing anything from, from uh, 
from that standpoint on the boards that what they're missing or the questions they're not asking? I'm not sure, but I think that uh, maybe that's why DNO rates are skyrocketing in 2020, 2021. There's a lot of, there's a lot of lawsuits that the boards are not addressing their fiduciary responsibilities correctly. And part of it comes back to some of the cyber issues we've discussed. Um, so for a board to be adequately protected, the board really needs to have this discussion very purposefully with the executives of the nonprofit, the for-profit, the government, whatever the, whatever the entity might be. And the board has to ask one simple question. When the executives say, we've got it all taken care of, they've got to ask this question. Why, when, when cyber attacks are at an all-time high and increasing exponentially, why are you so convinced that you're the only firm in America that has it all figured out? <laughs> Prove it. That's excellent, Chris. You're absolutely right. Paul, let me ask you a quick question, and it's a little bit rhetorical, but I'll ask it nonetheless. Would you sell, a, would you sell me a $10 million life insurance policy without a questionnaire and a medical workup? I don't think it's possible. Okay, fair <laughs> enough, get right? through that, all right? You all have right. to do those. Okay, great. So would you sell me a $10 million cyber policy uh, with just a questionnaire? Uh, no, I, I think it, it, for those limits, companies are gonna wanna know what you're doing, what your uh, um, procedures and policies are. And then to that point, as I look through and I see what kind of cyber claims are out there, it still looks like the biggest percentage of them is human error. I don't know if that's what you're seeing, but you know, the ransomware is a big deal. Um, all of these things are a big deal, but at the end of the day, the, ex the exposures come from somebody making a mistake. So no matter how good and bulletproof your training is, say if I'm sitting on a board, I can go, we've got all these things in place, but it should still be foreseeable that somebody's gonna mess up somewhere. Mm -hmm. and, and what is our next step as a company? What have we done with our fiduciary role to protect the company because of human error? Absolutely. I, anecdotally, I believe there's a huge number of underfunded cyber policies out there today uh, because I, I might be answering the questions as honestly as I know, but without the corresponding, let me use my life insurance example. On my questionnaire, I answer to the question, how many alcoholic drinks do you have per week? I say one, right? But the blood work then comes back that I have advanced cirrhosis of the liver. So there's a disconnect between my answer and what the medical results prove. Unless it's a big I have, drink every week. It is, right? A huge <laughs> drink, right? But just one, right? <laughs> the, the, the corresponding look at systems is not being done enough to help the underwriters do their job well in being able to, to, to fund these policies through the appropriate premiums. And only through backlash and an after, uh, you know, the, the, the reaction to big claims, then do you get a swing in premiums that may not be fair either. Right, so just to, just food for thought for the folks who are writing these policies out there. Yeah, go that a little bit, Paul. Um, sure. I had a meeting with a cyber insurer on Friday. They said minimum rate increases are 20% and 100% will 
will uh, occur this year for quite a number of policies, cyber policies, 100% rate increases. It's that underfunded. Um, and another point to Mark's point, um, as you well know, we have, um, we also have a sister company called Durand Education. We have a beautiful, beautiful cyber education program and number one class, the first class is how to fill out a cyber application. I think that's one of the parts that gets missed, honestly, is that these cyber apps are really hard to fill out accurately. And they're not written well, by and large. And so to Mark's point is, the carriers aren't even always asking the right questions on those applications. The insureds definitely don't know how to answer it accurately. And the agents don't know how to help the insureds, by and large. Education, coming back to that part, is crucial to making sure that clients, have, that agents are selling the right coverage. And it starts with education on how to complete a cyber application. I, rip, I mean that with all my heart. Okay. Well, thank you, Chris. And thank you, Mark. I mean, this has been an enlightening conversation. Uh, hopefully, it's something that people haven't heard before. We've taken a little different uh, approach to that cyber exposure and this is the first step in that education for the the best in class agents to approach their clients and help them protect their business so i want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast thank you to uh to mark and chris for really providing some great insight and we'll look forward to talking with you next time